Okay, so we are doing Monday of Chukah. And today's section, or the beginning of the section, is discussing the laws of a person who has connected to the most intense form of impurity, the impurity of a corpse, the impurity of something dead. And this, of course, is the section, the first section of the Torah portion of Chukah, which is the laws of the Paraduma, the red heifer, which has the power to cleanse such impurity. So, of course, the general concept is you have this perfectly red heifer, two black hairs already disqualifies it, whose ashes are burnt, and they are mixed with water and all these ritually, uh, ritualized ways and sprinkled on the third and seventh day, as we're going to learn, on a person who has contact with a corpse, with something dead, and through a series of actions, the person attains purification. And this, this concept of the red heifer is, is really significant of the whole concept of a chayk, of something which is completely inexplicable. Why is the red heifer what's used? Why is the burning it? Why is the ashes of it? And all of this is really turning to God and saying, God, we don't pretend to understand you. We're serving you, which, of course, relates to the word chok, both is a term for a law whose reason we don't understand, and also alludes to the idea of chakika, something engraved. We have letters, as they're normally written, ink on parchment, which is two separate entities that have become one, but a much deeper form of oneness is when the letter is literally carved out of the thing itself, like tablet and this type of relationship to God is a relationship where it's hakika our relationship is so deep it's not two separate things that have become one it's the entity itself so to look at the verses and through the Rashi's understanding some of these laws and symbolism so we're up to chapter 19 verse 18 and we're here in the middle of this discussion of the person who had become impure through the most intense form of impurity, death. And we, he needs to have a person who's pure do these various acts with the ashes that have been mixed with the spring water to create purity for him. Because automatically he's impure for a seven-day period. So verse 18, sorry, verse 18. A pure man shall take the hyssop and dip it in the water, the water which has the ashes of the red heifer mixed in it. Now, again, there were a total of 10 red heifers, or to be more accurate, nine. The 10th will be by the redemption. The first was done by Moshe, by Moses, and then there was another eight that were done until the destruction of the temple and the cessation of the service. And the 10th will be by Mashiach. So we're talking about nine over a period of hundreds of years. Obviously, the ashes lasted a very long time. Obviously, it's very, very rare to have this completely red cow with not even two black hairs that has never worked and completely pure and completely healthy and many, many, many other laws that made it very, very, very rare. So the man shall take the hyssop and dip it in the water, the water that has the ashes in it, and sprinkle upon the tent, upon all the vessels, 
upon the people who were there and upon the one who touched the bone or the slain one or the one that died or the grave. The pure person shall sprinkle upon the impure person on the third day and on the seventh day. And he shall purify him on the seventh day. Then he shall immerse his clothing and immerse his flesh in water and to be pure in the evening. So the person that had contact with the dead, he is impure for seven days, but during the course of those seven days, he gets sprinkled twice, the third day and the seventh day. And then the verse sort of repeats that he shall purify him on the seventh day. So Rashi clarifies, it doesn't mean now an additional sprinkling. We already said he gets sprinkled on the third day and the seventh. So saying he shall purify him on the seventh day means this is like the culmination. This created his purity. The seven days wait, the two days of sprinkling, and then he has to wash his clothing, go into a mikvah, immerse himself, and in evening he is pure. Verse 20. And a man shall be impure and does not purify himself. That person should be cut off from the midst of the congregation, for he shall have made the sanctuary of God impure. Because the water of sprinkling has not been thrown upon him, he is impure. So if we have a person who was impure, came in contact with the dead, and did not go through this, this purification process, we have a tremendous problem, and he has a tremendous problem. And he actually, if he would go into the temple, he receives the most severe punitive consequence, courage, excommunication of the soul. Because not only is he impure, but him going to the temple, he's defiling it. Now Rashi sort of begins an allusion to a question and discussion in the Talmud on this, this verse. Because this verse says that if he goes into the temple when he's still impure, then there is this excommunication. If you look previously, we're in verse 20. If you go back to verse 13, it says almost the same thing, but it doesn't say the temple, it says the tabernacle. If he's dead, if he's impure, if he doesn't go through the purification process, then he's defiling the tabernacle and he's going to receive charis, excommunication. So the Talmud asks, wait a minute, why don't he say both? In essence, it's repeating itself, and the Torah is careful on its words. So the Talmud explains that if we only had one and not the other, we wouldn't assume the second. Meaning if we only knew about the tabernacle, the Mishkan, what they had in the desert, and not the temple, we would assume it only applies to the tabernacle. If we only knew the temple and not the tabernacle, we would assume it only applies to the temple. The reason being that the tabernacle, each in in essence had an advantage over the other. The tabernacle, unlike the temple, was anointed with a special anointing oil. That didn't happen in the temple. So that's a certain spiritual advantage. So maybe because of its heightened spiritual state, because it was anointed with this anointing oil, with the Shem and HaMishcha, it cannot handle such defilement, and therefore if a person enters like that, he, he receives excommunication of his soul. But the temple doesn't have that level of purity, so it's not defiled the same way. Conversely, if it only said temple and not tabernacle, I could think, well, the temple is eternal. Once the temple was built, we can no longer have private altars. But the tabernacle was transient. It was only for a temporary state. So maybe the temple whose sanctity is eternal, if such a high level of sanctity, if you defile it, forget it, excommunication. But the tabernacle doesn't have that intensity because it's not eternal. So therefore, if you defile it, you wouldn't receive excommunication. So therefore, since each one has a spiritual advantage the other does not possess, if it only wrote one, I wouldn't assume the other. And that's why it writes both. Verse 21. 
This shall be for them an eternal statute, and one who sprinkles the water of sprinkling shall immerse his clothing, and one who touches water of sprinkling shall be impure until evening. So this is sort of a confusing verse. Why is it confusing? Because if we look previously in verse 19, or verse 18 for that matter, it's clearly here talking about a pure person doing these actions. The pure man takes the hyssop. In 19, the pure person sprinkles. So we're saying very clearly that the sprinkler is pure. This seems to say that the sprinkler has attained impurity, and that's why he has to immerse his clothing. So Rashi clarifies that no. Though it says the one who sprinkles, it doesn't mean the one who sprinkles. It means the one who carried the water as a purification. Actually received an impurity to such a degree that he even needs to wash his clothing. They also received impurity. In other words, actually his impurity is more intense. It's very interesting here because we're talking about two levels of impurity and of course this makes no sense to us. Which goes back to idea that this is a choik, a law that doesn't make sense to us. Because we have here two people here. The verse says the one who sprinkles the water. But we said that doesn't be, that can't be, because verse 19 is clearly saying that the one who sprinkles it is pure. So therefore Rashi says that the one who sprinkles it refers to the one who carries it. The one who carries this water becomes so impure that even his clothes are impure. The one who touches, who comes in contact with the water, becomes impure, but a lesser impurity. Now, why, if we don't mean the one who sprinkles, does the verse say the one who sprinkles? Well, very simply, obviously you wouldn't fall prey to thinking it means the one who sprinkles, because verse 19 clearly said the one who sprinkles is pure. So you wouldn't have that confusion. So therefore you would understand that the one who sprinkles is to give you a quantity of water that will create this impurity, meaning who's becoming impure? The one who's carrying the water. Not the priest who's sprinkling it, but the one who brought it to the priest. Well, how much water do you need to carry to become impure? Enough water that would be sufficient for sprinkling, which means if you have in, let's say, a bowl, enough water that if you dip this hyssop stalks into it, they became wet enough to sprinkle, that's what we mean by enough water to sprinkle. And if you had that much water in it, you became impure. So why is it that the person who's carrying the water becomes impure? The water itself creates purity. The person who the water is sprinkled on, who has the impurity of a corpse, becomes pure. And the one who's carrying such water becomes impure? Correct. This is a hike. We don't understand it. And we said the one who touches the water of the sprinkling becomes impure, but not the same intensity as the one who's carrying it, because his impurity does not affect his clothing. Clothing has to be washed, so therefore it shows it's a lesser impurity. Verse 22, anyone whom the impure one shall touch shall be impure, and the person who touches shall be impure until evening. Meaning, we're talking here, we're going back, the impure one here means the person who became impure because of contact with a corpse. That's the impure one we are referring to. And the person who touches the person who came in contact with the corpse now receives impurity. And as Rashi explains that this person, meaning the first person, Reuven, came in contact with a corpse. Shimon later touched or was touched by Reuven. Now Shimon becomes impure until evening. That is incredibly unusual 
as Rashi explained, normally if there's a source of impurity and that source is transmitted, like in this case to a person, then the person is impure, but he doesn't have enough impurity in him to transfer that impurity to another person. The only one, the only object that could receive secondary impurity is normally food and drink. Meaning, if there was a source of impurity and a person touched it, he became impure. And then any food or drink he comes in contact to becomes impure as well, which is okay for him because he's impure, so he can eat impure food and drink, but nobody else can. But that's it. Nothing else becomes impure because he himself is not a primary source of impurity. He's a secondary source of impurity. He became impure through contact with something else, the primary source of impurity. But uniquely with a corpse, because that is called avi avosa tumma. That is the most intense form of tumma is death. Death is the absolute antithesis of godliness. As we know, with the primordial sin, death, impurity, evil entered the world. When we have the complete revelation of the redemption, death will be removed. So death symbolizes absolute impurity. So death is so impure that if a human comes in contact with this corpse, with death, not only is he impure, but he actually conveys that impurity forward to anything else he comes in contact to, even to a person which again is completely unique law only in connection with death and any other form of impurity that does not apply. Only when there's contact with a corpse, which again is called avi avos, the absolute most intense primary source of impurity. Now Rashi at this point, after going through these laws, is going to now bring a jirash, a homolytic explanation now, Rashi is a Pashtun. He says, I have a function. My function is to explain the literal meaning of the verse. So whenever he brings something that does not sound literal, that actually is literal. Because if it wasn't literal, he, so to speak, wouldn't be allowed to bring it. Meaning Rashi created a self-created box. I explain the literal meaning. So since that's his box, he's very loyal to his box. And if something is not literal, he won't explain it to you. Even if, for example, you have a question, a chuck question, a question on the literal meaning of the verse, but there's no answer that really suffices. And Rashi knows an awesome, perfect answer, but it's not part of the literal meaning of the verse. He'll tell you that. He'll say, oh, there's a great answer, but I can't give it to you because it's not chuck. All right, so for us to see this portion that Rashi, again, as a Pashtun, as someone who has created a box for himself, which is, I only explain the literal meaning of the text, is now going to give us something that seems completely not literal. But we know Rashi never steps outside his box, and therefore, everything here is actually integrated and the only way to understand the literal meaning of the verse. Now, the verses we're going to look at are not the verses in today's portion, because today's portion started with verse 18. This is actually explaining, now we're going back and looking at the first nine verses. And the overarching theme here is that all of the details embedded in the red heifer are actually because, in totality, the red heifer is coming to atone for the sin of the golden calf. 
And as such, not only in its most broad scope, but also in the precision of the wording, this is all having to do with details of the golden calf. Which, of course, since we're looking at the red heifer as that which eradicates the most intense evil, the evil of death itself, this makes sense that was really eradicating the evil of the golden calf because the golden calf is in essence actually what brought death back into this world. Meaning when the Jews accepted the Torah, it says the Jews were freed from many things, including death. In theory, at that point, we're beyond evil, beyond the enslavement of the nation, beyond the enslavement of death, which had lived forever at that point. But what happened? What happened was, we fell with the golden calf and death returned as did the blurring of godliness and evil and as did coarseness back to the world. So really the golden heifer brought death in. So the golden calf, I'm sorry. So as a golden calf brought death back in, the red heifer, which is coming to remove death, is coming to remove the impurity of the golden calf that brought death back once again into our world. So Looking back at the verses, in verse 2, looking at the nuances here, the precision of these words, says, and you shall take to you this red heifer, Tamima, purely red, red heifer. So take to you because just as when the Jews sinned with a golden calf, they took from their own, they took from their own jewelry, the men rushed to give their own jewelry, to create the golden calf, so to here, take for you, the atonement should be from your own. A red cow, the red heifer, because the calf is like the child of the cow. So just as we can imagine, if a child comes and dirties something, the mom comes and cleans up the mess. So the golden calf dirtied. The red heifer, the mother, the cow, is coming to clean up the mess. Red, because the verse compares red to sin. This is the sin of the golden calf. Now, when Rashi first explained this word pure, per aduma tmima, Rashi was looking as pure as modifying the word red, purely red. But here in the drash, which is really the literal meaning as well, the pure is actually explaining the cow, that the cow is completely perfect, symbolizing the Jews who are completely perfect and became blemished through the sin of the golden calf. So the red cow, the red heifer, is coming to help return them to their state of perfection. Now this red heifer, this red cow, could never have borne a yoke. There's no yoke on it, representing the Jews who threw off God's yoke with their sin. We're supposed to bring this cow, this heifer, to El Azar, the priest, not to Aaron, the high priest, because Aaron was involved with the sin of the golden calf. Not that he was doing anything wrong or any lack of belief in God, but to stall the Jews, he was involved in the storyline and therefore he can't be the one to bring this purification. That's why it was brought to Eleazar, his son. The cow was burnt because the calf was burnt. This was part of the rectification. Afterwards, when Moses came down, we had a few levels three different options of Jews who sinned. Jews that sinned with witnesses of warning, 3,000 that were killed by swords. And then Jews in other categories. So for Jews that were not 
of that category of sinning with witnesses and warning, Moses took the golden calf, burnt it, spread the ashes, mixed the ashes in water, and they drank the water, testing them like the sota. The woman is tested by drinking the water. And if they had sinned, they died through those waters. So just as the, at the calf was burnt, so to this cow, the atonement here is going through this burning process. We have three varieties that are being brought together to create the atonement, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the red wool, symbolizing, as I mentioned before, those 3,000 men who were the most grievous sinners, the sinners that literally sinned with witnesses and mourning and therefore were killed by the sword. Why specifically the cedar? The cedar is the tallest of all trees. It's joined with these low things, the hyssop, the red wool actually symbolizes something low here because the word for red here, the red wool is tolas, shani, and tolas also means a worm. So like the worm is so low, like the hyssop is so low. So if one has sinned, as here the Jews sinned with a golden calf, you, what is sin coming from? Sin is coming from ego. Sin means you're separating yourself from God. That's the essence rooted in ego. So because of the ego of the sin, which led to the golden calf, like the cedar, you're holding yourself so high, how can one return? Lowering oneself, like the worm, like the himself. Now, these ashes of the red heifer are supposed to be kept forever, for generations, as I mentioned earlier. From Moses until now, we've had only nine. So the ashes were kept. They're actually kept, as Rashi explained yesterday, in three sections. A portion that was used over time, a portion that was kept, it was just kept for generations as the part that was just there forever, and the portion that was there for the high priest who would make the other, the next red heifer. So we have literally a part that was just saved. And Rashi says, why do we have that? Because just as the sin of the golden calf was kept, for generations, as we're told, that any future punishment the Jews would ever suffer is partially atoning, partially part of the punishment for the sin of the golden calf. So the sin of the golden calf, the sin is kept for the generations, the ashes here have to be kept for the generation. As we learn today, that the whole process of the golden, of the heifer, creates impurity, like we said, it's sort of strange. The one carrying it, these waters that will bring purity to the other person, render impure the person carrying it. So just as the golden calf made impure all those that came in contact as an idol transmits impurity to anyone who touches it, so too the ashes of the red heifer, anyone who's dealing with it, become impure, even though it itself brings purity. And then just as ultimately the golden calf's ashes brought this purity, because as I said, the calf was burnt, its ashes were mixed with water, and the Jews were tested, died, and the others rendered pure through it. So too, of course, the ashes of the red heifer bring purity. What type of purity? Purity from death. As we're saying, the golden calf brought death back into the world.